Hello, and thank you for joining us on the Deeper Listening Podcast. My name is John Pru, and I'm here with my co-host, Justin Bruce. We want to help you discover new music from bands that you already know and bands that you don't. And of course, we're not music experts, but we are music nerds, just a couple of middle-aged dads who enjoy discovering music, whether it's new or whether it's old. In this episode, we're digging into St. Vincent. We'll use the idea of Deeper Listening to track her music from her incredible debut album, Marry Me through her most recent release, uh, Daddy's Home, which just came out a couple of weeks ago. We aim to give the albums that you know context and to look for the hidden gems that make being a music fan so rewarding. And it's funny, John, because I've dabbled with St. Vincent over the years. I think I first heard her back in 2014 on Mark Maron's WTF podcast seven years ago. It's been a while, but I have never done any deeper listening. So a thorough survey of her catalog It was definitely a fun process and shed a lot of light on her musical evolution. And it's always been kind of mysterious to me. She's always remained a little out of reach for someone who's listened to each album once or twice and then moved on. But this is a perfect fit for our Deeper Listening podcast. We went real deep. So let's dig into St. Vincent. So, Justin, Annie Clark writes music that, for me, is both extremely familiar and totally different than anything that I've ever heard. Her voice, to me, it kind of flawlessly oscillates between this delicate, kind of melodic, almost understated voice to this, like, deep and, and sultry voice that, that, that comes across in some of her other songs, as does the instrumentation in her music. She's really just, she really has a lot of incredible skill. It was something that was, for me, I was, I was really... In, into the deeper listening of this because it was just to me it just seems so fresh so much to dig into so many layers to peel back given time i found that lyrics started to really reveal themselves to me when uh, upon some of my initial listens over the last several years i was like i'm I'm not really sure if there's anything here for me to sink my teeth into Uh, but there definitely is a lot of both lyrical and musical content to get real cozy with i felt like i'd didn't ever really know her music all that well. And for that reason, I appreciated it, but I don't know if I ever really loved it. But I can say now, after spending a lot of time with all of her albums, like I am all in and just thoroughly impressed. And that does include right out of the gate in 2007 with her debut album, Marry Me. Eventually, we're going to have to do a podcast. We're just going to have to pick a band that we just don't like. (laughs) So it doesn't seem like we're always just, you know, just so excited about everything we're listening to. But we have had just a series of home runs. And this was no exception. So for me, I was familiar with St. Vincent's middle late catalog. Um, I obviously hadn't heard Daddy's Home when uh, when we started the project because that was a new album that uh, we actually timed the project so that uh, 
we would be able to listen to that and talk about it when it was still fairly new. But Marry Me was an album that was completely unfamiliar uh, to me. Uh, there were several songs in this album that as soon as they were finished, I started them over again. Uh, just a little background about St. Vincent. So she grew up kind of musically uh, oriented uh, as a teen. She worked for her aunt and uncle, a touring jazz and vocal duo, uh, became their tour manager, not sure exactly what that entailed, but she went to Berkeley and Boston to study music for three years. She lived in New York City a bit doing the music thing, but in her own words, it didn't really work out, kind of ran out of money and had to go back home to Texas. She grew up in the Dallas area. She had an opportunity to join the Polyphonic Spree, I think back in like 03 or 04, shortly after leaving New York City. So she did that. Uh, then a couple years after that, she joined Sufjan Stevens band in 2006. And I'm pretty sure that was on the Illinois or Illinois tour. Amazing album. And count me into the category of people who are still hoping for 48 other state albums by Sufjan Stevens, Michigan, Illinois. I need all the other ones, even though that's never, ever happening. Uh, but She's no musical rube. She has, you know, a lot of background in the industry. So it kind of makes sense that right out of the gate, uh, she's hitting home runs here. Yeah, you know, I listen to her music and, and the fact that she actually, you know, went to music school and things like that, that really becomes apparent because of the way that she can mix, mix sounds together in a way that just seems like they were just born to be together, you know, and, and she really does such a cool job of that. And she uses like this fuzz guitar, you know, and she's a really skillful guitar player, but she uses it to just put like these perfect accents on her music. And I, I was just, I was so impressed with all of it. Uh, the first song on the album, I do want to spend just a little bit of time with, because there was a, there was something about this that really struck me and it stuck with me through the entire listening project. And that is uh, one of the lyrics that she, that she starts out with. And now, now, um, you know, the lyric uh, says, I am not any, 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 anything at all. You know, I heard the word any A N Y as Annie, A N N I E, which is her name. Right. So looking at the arc of her career, I really believe that this was kind of an intentional thing to come out of the gates and say, you know, I'm not Annie. I even saw an interview with her where where she said something about Annie being the name that her parents gave her. Mm. And I think that what we see throughout the arc of her career is I don't want to say that it's that it's chameleonism because it's really not that. But she really like does this shape shifting thing where she takes on a new identity with each album and every album kind of has its own definition to it. And I think that to me, and maybe I'm reading too much into this and I really don't care because I like it. <laughs> it, sits, it sits well in my brain. Um, but, you know, to me, I listen to this and it's like she, she took on an alter ego and she's telling you right from the beginning, like, you know, what you see is not necessarily what you get. And I thought that that was really cool. That's an astute observation because I heard the any Annie line, but I didn't take it to that next level like you did. So good job. That makes total sense. And 100% you know, she is someone who is like taking on a, a musical persona and, and it does shift dramatically from album to album, which made doing a deep dive into her discography you know, really entertaining because it's not like the same thing over and over and over again. And the way that she can sweetly sing, 
you don't mean that, say you're sorry, before rolling into I'll make you sorry. But the whole time it's this angelic voice and you're like, yeah, yeah, sure. Anything you want, Annie, I'm on board. really draws you in and then there is that frenetic guitar at the end of track one and like you said she can play guitar um, but she does it sparingly and as we get deeper into her catalog with more effects where not necessarily sure it sounds like a traditional guitar but it's almost like little exclamation points that she uses uh, to punctuate songs as opposed to being like the bread and butter of the entire song. I really agree with that. And I'm going to get completely obliterated for saying this next statement, but I'm going to do it anyway. To me, she reminds me of John Mayer, but not any in, in the way that she plays, but in the way that when I hear John Mayer play, especially when he plays like his own music, what I hear is somebody that you can almost tell like they're holding back the whole time. And it's like, they never like really go for it. And because you know that John, I mean, if, you know, John Mayer gets a lot of flack in our community, you know, as a member of Dead and Co and whatever, like I get it. But when I think about the way that he plays, like the dude could play, like he is a, he is a very, very, very good guitar player. Yeah. That John Mayer trio stuff is it's incredible, right? Oh, it really is. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely incredible. So I, the reason that I make the comparison there is because there are very few times in any of her music where I feel like she really shows you what she's actually capable of. So I agree with what you're saying. I think that she has very intentionally put it, put the guitar work in there in a very sparing way. So one, I think it has like this maximum impact of coming across, you know, and cutting through the music in a way, but also it's, it's like, she doesn't, she hits you over the head with it and then immediately backs off. You know, it's, it's such a cool way of going about it. I get a real like art rock vibe from her. And I'm sure that's like the generic Wikipedia category or, or one of the many that are listed on her profile. But uh, yeah, it, it definitely doesn't strike me as, you know, traditional music, which makes it fun, makes it kind of interesting because in our last couple of episodes with Fiona, you know, so much lyrical content to dig into so much musical content to dig into, but you know, at the end of the day, it's her and her piano. Uh, whereas I feel like Annie Clark can like put a mask on her guitar tone and just do a million different things with it, which is pretty cool. Which is why we're talking about this first song ad nauseum on our first album. We've got a little more ground to cover here. You know, by the time Jesus Saves started, like I was really getting a little upset with myself that I had not taken the time to go back in her catalog because with the with Mass Seduction and with uh, the self-titled album and with Strange Mercy, like I really liked all three of those albums. I have no idea why I never went back and listened. While Jesus is saving, I'm spending all my days in the garden. You know, your lips are red. This starts to make me, you know, this starts to feel more familiar to what I've known of her previously. I guess like more odd sounding for lack of a, of a better way to put it. 
um, you know, I mean it in a really great way, but like around like the 330 mark, the tenor of the song changes dramatically. And it's like there's this hint of insanity. Or, uh, you know, I get the sense that, you know, she is a performer and she wants uh, our, as the audience, our attention uh, to be, you know, captivated. And I think that's part of why she's always taking these twists and and turns and, you know, why a song uh, will take a pivot point like it does in Your Lips Are Red. And she does it uh, at that 330 mark, you know, with this slinky violin chorus, which is just totally unlike what we heard on the first couple of tracks. So you never know what you're going to get with these songs. Uh, and it, you know, makes it really, really kind of fun to listen to. And then we get into Marry Me, title track, and we get our first introduction to this John character, which we're going to catch across, not John Prue, unfortunately for you. Well, and actually, I, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and make an announcement. Uh, it is May <laughs> oh. that she's uh, that she's talking about mm. um, throughout her, her her entire career. So you wow, know. you have so been, ask, ask me any questions. I've got all the answers. You have been her paramour. Maybe you can get us tickets <laughs> to uh, one of her shows this upcoming summer. But marry me, John. I'll be so good to you. It's so sweet. Marry me, John. get the impression that she's always writing almost always writing from the position of the heartbreaker as opposed to the heartbreak e and it seems both musically and lyrically that she is someone who's kind of always in control at least that's how she's presenting herself she says marry me john i'll be so good to you but then she follows it up with you won't realize i've gone so it's like well what's going on here we want it John to marry us, but you're not going to maybe stick around or you're not promising anything, even though you're inviting him into this. It's just kind of interesting. A lot of layers of this onion to peel back, even though as just a schmuck, you hear marry me, John, you're like, okay, yeah, whatever you want, Danny, I'm on board. <laughs> yeah, I love so you I'm like, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'd be happy to. I really think that there are probably a lot of parallels between, I don't know exactly how to describe this. I'll do my best, but there's like parts of your mind that when you speak about them, you kind of do your best to make sure that you present them in a way that you feel like it's going to be palatable for other people, right? Like you're like, okay, this is going to sound a little crazy. So let me frame this a little bit differently. I don't think she has that filter. Like, and I think that she describes like that odd, you know, the odd part of her mind in a way that is just authentic and genuine. I don't know. I don't like, it wasn't even that I found it relatable. It was just more that like, I just found it to be a really honest representation of like what, what she kicks around in her head. And I think that's a pretty brave thing to do. I mean, we talked about that with Fiona talking, you know, about her past trauma and, you know, couldn't admire her enough for her bravery. I think it is artistically brave, even just to put the weird thoughts and, you know, the contradictions that are hiding out in your brain, just out there. Uh, publicly. And I mean, you know, as someone who doesn't 
make a lot of art, I would imagine that for an artist, like that's got to be the only way to go if you want to kind of be happy with the the pure end result is just you know, honesty, even to the point where it's not necessarily you know going to do you any favors, just in the pursuit of like being honest. So yeah, really, really cool. And it doesn't always, one plus one isn't always two in our brains. So that's why we get some of these, you know, little weird turns in her lyrics. Yeah, you know, and it's one of the things that I find about like when comedians are able to, to you know, to joke about something that you realize as soon as they say it is, the, is like a very universal thing that you didn't necessarily realize was universal until they talked about it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I think it's kind of the, you know, in, in a very odd way, it's kind of the same thing here. And, you know, Paris is Burning is a great example to me. First of all, the drumming that's in this one adds just a completely different dimension to, to the song. me in my head it sounded like almost like a like a demented like latin undertone to the song um and then there's this almost like circus waltz um you know that that happens at some point in the song and then like and then it kind of wraps up and what i would can only describe as like the final descent into just complete madness and you know it's like this song is spiraling into madness the entire time with the way that it's with the way that it's arranged musically and lyrically um, you know, it's, and to me, that's much like the protagonist of the song is this this very dis- disillusioned person. You know, I thought this song was so cool. This was another one, just like Now Now, as soon as this one was over, I must have listened to the song 10 times in a row. You know, wow. like, it, yeah, I mean, and I just, I, I couldn't get enough of it. I And this song and Now Now, I go back to constantly. I really love both of those. Well, this came out in 2007. So this did give me like a real Decemberist kind of arcade fire, sort of like mid-aughts, what was going on in the indie community, kind of a vibe in general. And to your point about the spiraling into madness, like there's this muted sing-songy keyboard or guitar or strings. I don't know what it is, but it's magnetic. And it's also like a little off-putting at the same time. Uh, And that's a sound that was unique enough that it really grabbed my attention. And then we hear it in the next track as well. So sonically, I mean, she's all over the place. And All My Stars Align, the song takes like a surprising turn. It's something that's kind of comes out of left field. Uh, it's something that I absolutely don't see coming musically. Like it's it's almost like the notes don't resolve in the way that I expect them to. And this happens constantly all throughout her catalog where she does things that to me are very musically fresh ideas and things that I am absolutely not looking for and what my ear doesn't naturally go to. But when, so when it happens, it makes me pay attention and um, it's just riddled all throughout her catalog. And this song is kind of where that, that gets started, where there's really something that I just was completely surprised by. I will say that musically she does throw us a bone because yes, it starts off sweet 
uh, almost emblematic of like a new relationship. But then there is this 007 music, like literally the James Bond theme or something very close to it. And I heard that I was like, okay, something is going on here. This is symbolic of some kind of a turn. where the lyrics end up in the back half of the song basically i got the vibe that like okay this relationship is this isn't it and i'm gonna be the one to move on again where she's the one who's kind of like you know running the show a little bit control wise but without that music at the midpoint this probably would have just all washed over my big head so it was nice for her to like kind of throw a throw a, a little hint out there to the audience she is the catalyst for changing relationships or like she seems to be the one who is like, I don't want to say inflicting pain because that's not, the, I don't think that's the right way to put it. I, I had this, this thought in my notes and then I deleted it because I'm like, dude, you're not an armchair like therapist. You need to just talk about the music, but her parents divorced when she was three. Uh, she's got a, a blended family, lots of step brothers and stepsisters. And even though I haven't read anything where she talks about that situation really impacting or all that negatively growing up. One thing I thought was, well, people who tend to want to really kind of have a firm grasp on the situation to keep things in their control, or maybe people who didn't feel like they had any control maybe earlier in their life. So maybe that's a little bit uh, at play, but again, you know, not my, not my point to a psychoanalyze Annie Clark, but that's something that did pop up in my mind if we're being honest. Yeah, no, and it very well could be because when you think about she sings very candidly about life experiences that she has, you know, and so she seems to be somebody, again, <laughs> it's very similar to Fiona Apple, who has a very good way of talking about uh, things that have happened in her life in a, in a kind of an open way, even if it's even if it's more veiled, I think, than than what Fiona does. For me, I'll round out my discussion of this album just to say that the the apocalypse song that's in there was another one that really stood out to me that I really liked. The strings are great, but the MVP is the bass. It has like this rolling bass line that my ear is drawn to immediately. So when you check out when you check out that album and listen to that song, key your ear to listen to the bass. Wait, I'll be swifter than the speed of light. Yeah, and I also heard this kind of like scrambling, frenetic guitar that reminded me of this emo band from the 90s, Sunny Day Real Estate. Are you familiar? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love Sunny Day Real Estate. I had a roommate in college who was really into them. So I think I got like one album, but it instantly took me back to, uh, I think Sunny Day Real Estate's like big album. I think it's called How to Be Something On or something like that. It's that you know she's going from syrupy strings on some songs to sweet acoustic uh, guitar on other songs to you know this very like 
orchestrated, planned out Paris's burning song to now she's reminding me of, of 90s emo. I mean, we're covering a lot of bases here. And one of my favorite songs on this entire album is Human Racing. Uh, it's got, again, like this little bit of a Mediterranean, bossa nova kind of acoustic guitar vibe. horns that she brings in remind me of the woodwinds from extraordinary machine which came Mm -hmm. out two years before this album so i was down with that Uh, she had to be listening to it right i mean you would you would i mean she had to have been listening to it i will say that i had uh read that fiona was uh influenced by kate bush Mm -hmm. um who i have never listened to 80s uh english kind of independent uh, musician, uh, but uh, Annie Clark also cites Kate Bush, or some you know, people cite it for her. So they are at the very least drawing from some parallel influences. But yeah, you would you would think that she would be listening to that. Although then again, maybe Annie Clark is like Fiona Apple. Why am I going to listen to mainstream music? I'm off doing you know Polyphonic Street, and I'm hanging out with Sufjan Stevens. Where who knows? Who knows? I but know. I definitely I mean, to me, it's like I think that Fiona is so legit. <laughs> You know what I mean? That even though it was mainstream, I would be really surprised if anybody was turning up their nose and, and not listening to those albums. So, I mean, I, I really, and, and uh, maybe, my, maybe my own thing, but you know, maybe it's just because I liked it so much, but I mean, to your point in this, it's like, I also picked up on that. One of the thoughts that I did have is that I was very curious if, even though Fiona Apple is a contemporary of hers, if, if they, if she find if she would find her to be influential in, in her music. You would think so. Yeah, you would think so. And when I, you know, say, oh, Fiona had you know, so much widespread appeal, as we learned, I mean, she did in the late 90s, but not necessarily so in the mid aughts after Extraordinary Machine, it was respected, but it wasn't, you know, dominating MTV. It's not like it was, you know, it's not like she's on a smash mouth or bare naked ladies type <laughs> level of artistry here. <laughs> well, so, you know, and, and Fiona had already gone at... <clears throat> So now we're back to the Fiona Apple podcast, you know, part uh, three, you know, part three. Um, but she was also in the, in the phase where it's like, she had kind of really just written off the mainstream. It's like, she was already in it by extraordinary machine. And in the same time, she was already writing things like for her own amusement. She wasn't really writing for other people at this point, you know? So like, I think that that probably gives her a little bit of street cred. Right. Right. And just to keep looking in the rear view instead of looking forward, this album, Marry Me, came out in 2007, which is when Animal Collective Strawberry Jam came out. And Mm. how different sonically are we talking about? But also, uh, like, you could draw some parallels as well, just because there are so many layers and so much density kind of going on. uh, That that's one thing that I thought of. But let's fast forward a couple of years and go to 2009, and we're going to talk about Actor. Now, this album feels introspective, kind of quiet, fanciful, a little guarded. I didn't have a lot of lyrics jump into my ears with meaning right away. Apparently, she wrote a lot of this uh, while watching like old Disney movies, watching old films. She envisioned some of these songs as kind of like uh, sonic paintings or almost like soundtracks uh, and lots of strings. So the, uh, I, I guess, production values have shifted a little bit. 
This album is extremely well produced. I will just, you know, say off the bat that this was the album of hers that I probably connected with the least. But with that being said, still loved it. It was, it was still a great album. Just when I compare it to, to her other work, I found her other work to just be, for me, musically, was a little bit more interesting. In The Strangers, the lyrics suggest a sense of impending doom, whereas the music itself is pretty delicate up until she goes like full on Annie Clark, right? And then drops like into this like fuzz laden guitar line uh, in, in a place that you totally wouldn't expect. So once again, coming back to that theme of her doing something that for me musically is 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 out of left field, but it fits so well. And she's so good at doing that, like almost in a talking heads kind of way where she can pull a sound that you're not expecting to happen and then put it in in a way that just fits perfect. The fact that she goes in The Strangers, you know, from ethereally singing Paint the Black Hole Blacker with delicate woodwinds and then gets into that punchy, fuzzy guitar that you mentioned. I mean, it's like we're, we start in one place and we finish in a totally different place. Save Me From What I Want, the drums are out front, which is a little unusual with what we've heard so far from her. Shimmery guitar, love it. Uh, She's repeating Watch Your Step under the verses, and that kind of like paints the vibe. It kind of gives away like, all right, something's a little unsettled here. And my first several listens, I was like, I don't know what this song is about, but I I got that vibe, and that was enough to keep me going. writes kind of with a detachment and when i read critics who sort of you know say "Eh," you know she's so guarded it's like yeah that's how she comes off at first but this is really an artist who does reward listen upon listen upon listen i probably ended up hearing these albums 10 times each maybe a little more than that because we had a while to listen to these and it's just like things would just emerge lyrically And it really did connect with me more than I thought it would. I went into this project thinking, all right, I'm going to say the music is good. And boy, I wish I'd get a little more content and a little more vulnerability lyrically. But when I let the music kind of wash over me, it it was there. It was there for the finding. Um, But I think Save Me From What I Want is about pursuing a relationship that's forbidden or maybe no, it's not going to work out from the get go. Who knows? Could be wrong there. I, I hear you. And I, you know, and I, I really, I really like your commentary with that because I think it's, I think it's really right on. And this may seem kind of like a weird note, uh, but I feel like it's related. It's, you know, something that I definitely noticed was that when she sings, 
she enunciates her words extremely well while she's singing. Like she doesn't fade off at all. She doesn't leave off any sharp consonants. Uh, she pronounces all of them very clearly. Save me, save me, save me from what I want. Save me. Um, you know, this particular track was one of my favorites on the album. You know, the save me from what I want to me is, is kind of a potent message for somebody who like me is in recovery. Right. Because save me from what I want makes a lot of sense because it's like, if what I want is to, is to, you know, slowly destroy my life with, you know, with substances, you know, I need, I need saving from that. And I think maybe that's one of the benefits of her not like pigeonholing her lyrics is, you know, you can take it that way. I can think about, Oh, this maybe is about a relationship that's doomed. It's like just vague enough that it's really a, Hey, you know, take these lyrics in the direction that maybe you need to take them, which I think is really cool and kind of underrated. It kind of goes back to the the kind of demented, twisted idea that we were talking about earlier is that it leads me to believe that in the scenario of the song, at least, is that she wants to burn down the apartment that her and her partner are living in. Like there's still kind of an element of madness to the lyrics. And I'm not necessarily certain that she doesn't want to burn the apartment down with the person still inside of it. You know, <laughs> and I think yeah. that it gives you, I don't know, maybe, maybe I just went to a weird spot with it, but it, that was kind of, that was what was in my head was like, Oh, is this what she's talking about? And maybe it wasn't, maybe it was, but it, uh, her lyrics did allow me to kind of go to that weird spot and be like, Oh, well, you know, maybe this is like her, living out some dark fantasy that, that, that she has about, about getting out of a situation that she's in. Um, and then in the next song, the neighbors, it's like, I really, I really dig what's going on in this song too. Like the, Oh no. Um, that seems like it's being sung underwater. She has such a cool way of adding in effects to really kind of draw out the overall like feelings, I guess, that you would associate with the song. Um, you know, I got the feeling that the protagonist in the song is being like, is like trapped in suburbia almost. And, and again, it kind of, it, 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 it's very tied in to the save me from what I want lyrics in my mind, where it's like somebody is in a situation that is not them. They realize it's not them, but they kind of feel trapped there it's like she's right to question what's happening. She feels like she's losing her mind because she's the only one that sees it. And the music is so distorted. And like, as you mentioned, the, Oh no, it, it does sound uh, fuzzy and, and underwater. And it harkens back to the track before where the, the vibe is really communicated uh, with the watch your step, watch your step. And here it's, Oh no. And it kind of does the same thing, but yeah, I did get that. Like keeping up with the Joneses kind of uh, stress. Uh, although, like we were just talking about it, it's really maybe kind of stress that could be applicable to to any situation. Musically, this is a song that I was into, although lyrically, it's like, all right, I need like a, I need a little more, a little more to, <laughs> right. to bring me in the right direction. Actor out of work, though, this is like a flash forward to what we're going to hear in her big breakout 2014 self-titled album, at least in, in my opinion. It does feel like more modern St. Vincent. You're a summer. precise drums, uh, spurts of strings, and 
like a lot of momentum and again, almost a half delirious vibe. Uh, I think she's talking about love being confusing and it's not always what it seems, but who knows? It seems like there's a lot of tension in, in her idea of relationships, at least up until this point in her life. You know, this song to me, it's, it's hard not to like it, you know, like another one, another one that I really enjoyed, Um, you know, laughing with a mouth of blood, which is kind of a, kind of a cool name for a song right well, and in in actor out of work i think there's a lyric where she's talking about brass knuckles under under boxing gloves so here we are in the next track talking about laughing with the mouth of blood so i feel like she does draw these little like uh she does connect the dots in subtle ways or or, or at least you know there are little breadcrumbs uh that we can do some connecting for us yeah for sure i mean you know the song itself just has like this really great swing to it uh, it's absolutely one of my favorites that's on the album. The vocal delivery and the chorus um, is really just like spectacular. Um, you know, it adds just a really cool element to the song. mentioned that actor was kind of last on your list when you ranked her albums and we'll get into that and it was for me too although I I really enjoyed it but of all the songs across all of her albums laughing with the mouth of blood was the earworm that's been stuck in my head the last couple of days just for the little line tell my sister that I miss her tell my brother that it gets much easier I just really, really connected with that. And also all of my old friends aren't so friendly anymore. At first I was like, okay, well, that's whatever. Uh, It's one of the reasons why I have a small group of friends instead of a bunch of friends, because I can trust them and they're reliable. (laughs) But then I was thinking the line, all my old haunts are now haunting me. That's a little more personal and that's a little more introspective and about inner struggle. So I get this sense of like uh, trying to sort of figure my way through life here. Really good point. And I think that, you know, with what you're talking about, like, you know, my old haunts are now haunting me. Okay. Like I got it. You know what yeah, I mean? Like that's, that's true. That's I great, mean, we, great we, lyric, right? We can all apply that to our own lives and think about, Oh God, I, I wouldn't be caught dead in that place again. Or man, what was I thinking back then? Why well, was not I only that, like, do you ever, do you have like this moment in your life where you said something that was just like ridiculously stupid or like that was offensive to somebody or something like that? And you just can't shake it. Cause I do. Like I had, I made the mistake of saying something <laughs> extremely stupid around a, a, a girl that I was dating. It was her, like around her parents. And I was trying to like imitate something that a buddy of mine had done that I thought was funny. And it was just a disaster, like crickets, <laughs> you know, just awful. So it's like that to me is also an old haunt haunting me. Every time I think of that, I'm like, Oh, like it's just so cringe inducing and awful. So like, that's another thing that kind of makes another way that that lyric kind of impacts me a little bit. Well, and I want to jump into the muck with you. Maybe verbally, I don't necessarily have a lot of examples like that. But uh, yeah, actions wise, uh, got a laundry list, my friend, of things that are uh, are haunting me, even though they are well in the past. Yes. 
Well, I think that we covered pretty well in the Pearl Jam episode that, you know, when we were younger, we were complete idiots. So that's, this would be a nice time to remind the audience that as younger, as younger folks, we, uh, we were kind of dumb. <laughs> I need to put that into the intro. We're middle-aged dads. We're not music experts. We're music nerds. And boy, have <laughs> boy, we really we messed up. <laughs> couple of dumb dumbs uh, yeah i love it but who have pretty good musical taste if i'm gonna out of the awkward brew that was uh that was our younger selves it came came you know fairly a fairly good taste in music i mean at the very least we're not doing a podcast deep dive into uh bare naked ladies or <laughs> or matchbox 20 was that the other one you said <laughs> yes yeah, smash mouth <laughs> smash mouth all right all right oh we've got a great we've got a great next episode no um, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so Anyway, so to get back to this with Marrow, um, I really love this song. What I love so much about this song is how throughout the first two verses, you can hear this kind of demented guitar sound that's like kind of trying to break through. It's almost like the guitar is underneath like this flimsy wooden floor and like the swelling of the boards, like you can hear them creaking and then it finally breaks out in the chorus of the song. It's so cool. You know, on top of that, I'm a dad in my forties. So like, I'm also, I'm going to be into the rockers, right? And this one was a rocker. (laughs) And this is also like another uh, glimpse into the future with the uh, H-E-L-P help me chorus with the saxophone and that angular guitar, like, hello, uh, this is like kind of what we're going to get a lot more of in a really great way on her self-titled album, which what, I mean, at this point in time is like five years into the future. So she's got these, you know, little nuggets of her future Mm -hmm. self definitely brewing here in 2009. The party, Uh, The only reason that I want to mention this is because the drums and the piano give me big time uh, Andy Schauf vibes, which was my favorite album of 2020, uh, Neon Skyline. And dude, it was so good. It was such a good album. It's like I heard it whenever it came out, January, February, or March. It was pre pandemic, it was pretty early, but every time I listened, it's like, nope, not sick of it yet. Nope, not sick of it yet. And it ended up being my favorite of the year. It was it was in my top five and I, and or at least in my top ten maybe not in my top five twenty twenty had a lot of good of good music. a little bit of those Andy Schaff, uh, you know, Canadian bedroom uh, indie musician vibes in the party. So that was enough for me to be all about it. Uh, and I think it's a breakup song. She says, I'd pay anything to keep my conscience clean and there aren't enough hands to point all the fingers. So, you know, something, something uh, again, going on personally in her mid to late twenties. Totally fine. We're in the same boat. It's okay, Annie. Yeah, it's all right. It's all right. And there's there's a lot of other things on this album that, that stand out as, as being particularly good. Uh, I mean, she's just she's a great musician. She's a great songwriter. The production on these albums is really incredible. But if it's OK with you, let's go ahead and fast forward to 2011 and to Strange Mercy. Yeah, sounds like a great plan. Welcome to modern St. Vincent. The sonic layers are louder. Uh, they're more brash. We have bigger drums. There's even more fuzzy guitar. 
uh, Moog and other synthesizers. I want to apologize to my past self in our Funkadelic episodes for saying Moog synthesizers. I've heard enough people in the know say Moog that I'm going to adopt that. But it's really? on this album. Moog. That's oh, right. <laughs> I've called it. I've called it Moog my entire life. Well, you're a Moog noob, but we're going <laughs> to fix that. It's okay. Um, but I mean, this is like, I feel like she's really kind of coming into her own here uh, and it gets tense and it gets uncomfortable in some spots mm-hmm. musically. And I mm-hmm. know, I know that that is by design. We'll talk in a moment about, you know, what she is going through in her personal life in 2011, but her music is definitely kind of communicating uh, that uh, intensity. Chloe in the afternoon, apparently uh, the Google told me there's a 1972 French film by the same name uh, about marriage versus infidelity but i'm more interested in the music here it starts off with kind of these warbly keys and synths and punchy guitar lines before it's melted into a chorus that's punctuated by like almost military march type drums so like here we are modern era saint vincent right out of the gate It's, it's got this fuzz, it's darker sounding. The end of the song, um, it's, it's, it's just such a cool way to, to wrap it up. Um, I have no idea how she achieved the effect um, that, that, she, that she has kind of on the vocal in, in this song, but it's really, really cool. It sounds like it's like a combination of like fuzz, tremolo, reverb, demonic possession, and it's all <laughs> taking place underwater. <laughs> yeah, I would believe all those things if you told me that. Uh, and then we get into Cruel, and this is like my first, uh, like, oh, yeah, that's that's a St. Vincent song that's magnetic and grabs you, just the guitar lick. That's just a real head bobber. I like the fact that the drums on this album are a little more out front. She's got this shuffling drum beat. It just seems to be like a little more of a sturdy footing for her to do other musical things on top of. So I'm, I'm all in on cruel. And this is, I feel like one of her first, like really great songs. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a, it's an incredible song. And that lick that you're talking about, it seems like that there is kind of an inversion of that that happens, or at least an augmentation of that that happens in several songs where she kind of builds on that the same way that she has a central character that, that makes an appearance in several albums, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like that lick is a lick that in a certain way makes its way into multiple albums as well. Um, this song I really like because of how poppy the drums are and how poppy the guitar line is, yet for some reason it really doesn't even seem like a pop song. You know, so it's got like this pop presentation, but it's another example of her like straddling kind of the line of genres. You know, it seems like she likes to play around with a lot of different uh, thematic ideas and also really likes the idea of period music. So like kind of a side note, the song is also like really fun live. Because um, yeah, you've seen her twice, right? I have. I have. I've gotten to see her twice. You know, a lot of her music and this song is no exception. You know, I find myself being pleasantly surprised with the direction that it takes. Right. And we, and we talked about this and I remember listening to this song when she played it live and like there was just a part of it that stuck out so much live that when I went back and listened to the album I was like oh man like I missed that 
when I was listening to the studio version, but now it's like the part that sticks out the most. And I don't know if you have that experience with live music where sometimes there's something with the way that it's presented live that it doesn't necessarily have the same impact with the way that it's mixed in the studio version. And it's almost like you really get the artist's intent when you hear the live version with what they actually like accent. And when they don't have the influence of a producer saying, oh, we're going to bring the level of that down some. You well, know, that's and interesting. And, I'm going to have to go back and like listen to that again and seek out some live versions. Cause that's something, yeah. you know, I was elbow deep in all the studio stuff here. Uh, whereas there's lots of videos of her playing live. Cause apparently she slays. Uh, so oh, she does. She's amazing. I need to check this out. Uh, we get into cheerleader next. Uh, I like that. Hey, first time, long time. Uh, the lyrics are like out front and they are simple and kind of laid out on the table. I've had good times with some bad guys. I've told whole lies with a half <laughs> smile, which really struck me as being clever. And then we get into that chorus, a very thumping uh, sort of uh, purposeful counterpart. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and, and I'm going to completely contradict myself in the last episode. Uh, in the last episode, I didn't, I said that I really didn't care for the way that when Fiona Apple does, please, 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 she sings the word on the downbeat of the drums. And you like, were it wrong seems... about that, but I was just being generous and I figured <laughs> we'll let it slide. But well, yes. So I didn't like it in the Fiona Apple song, but when, when St. Vincent does it with the I, 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 Oh my God, it's so good. It's like, it's perfect. Um, you know, so, and I absolutely love the way that that works out. Uh, you know, like so many of her songs, she shows you the darker part of her personality through both the lyrics and the, really the styling overall of the music. Uh, she really seems to embrace the eccentricities and proclivities of her personality. Um, you know, I love how there was like this wash of fuzz that crashes over the song, like a wave, like running up on shore, like as, as it's happening. This song, like Cheerleader, if you haven't heard Strange Mercy and you're listening to this, like, please go put this song on. This was the one for me, like you were talking about earlier. This song, like, I'll find myself, like, I'll be, like, in the shower. You know what I mean? And this song will pop into my head. Mm-hmm. Like, it, like this song, just, it, it, it had total earworm for me. Yeah, she's she's good at that for sure. And the fact that there are so many different earworms and that they evolve, at least they have for me personally over the last few weeks. I mean, there's there's a lot of good stuff there. I loved Surgeon. Uh, I read this was uh, about a bout of depression that she suffered. like the slinky guitar in the chorus that accompanies the best finest surgeon come cut me open and it's just something that's like it's like it's got glue on it and it just sticks on your ears and it doesn't even necessarily like sound like guitar even though i'm pretty confident that's what it is i think the music on this track is probably some of the most interesting on the whole album and we do get some synthesizer but here it's like the exclamation point that finishes off the track It 
reminded me of uh, Funkadelic and Bernie Worrell and like all the tracks, especially like into the mid seventies when he was contributing a little more creatively where it's like, all right, Moog takeover, like take me places. And that happens a lot on this album. Like there are bridges and just little 15, 20 second snippets of music stuck into the middle of these songs or the end of these songs that you could expand and turn into like an hour's worth of what would be incredible instrumental music. Uh, Yeah, I I agree. I I, I totally agree. And with this, I could see anybody that's like gone through some type of really bad time, like relating to the song. I don't, I I understand that it was written about depression, but I think that it could be related to a lot of things where like somebody has just kind of gone through it. There's so many different ways that my mind could take the lyrical content of the song. You know, once again, I find my, I find that the music itself taking turns that I don't expect. And then I really, really like uh, the keys, especially in this one, you know, and again, it's, it's kind of a different instrument in, in all of these songs that does something where I'm like, Oh, like that was fresh. I also like really like the droning baseline that goes, that goes along in this song. Um, lots of really cool things that are, that are going on here vocally as well. The last minute and a half of the song get weird in the best possible way. So good. I mean, I think I really think that musically, like this is a step above her prior two albums, even though I'm a big fan of those early albums. Just really impressive. Uh, we have to draw a fish comparison because if we don't, what kind of nerds are we? Well, nobody uh, would have a, have a theme to drink to if we don't talk about fish. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, Northern Lights. You know, okay, here we go. She says, I saw the Northern Lights and, you know, Tom and Trey said, I never, ever saw the Northern Lights. So, boom, she uh, she apparently has has been there and seen them. Uh, I like the actual drums on this song, a squirming guitar that comes out halfway through and introduces some tension uh, into the equation before it just bubbles over in the last minute, like, This is an example of her being an incredibly talented guitar player who has restraint, uh, but because she does, it carries that much more weight when like her frenetic playing does kind of bubble over. So definitely want to recommend folks, you know, check that out specifically. And then Strange Mercy, favorite track on this album. And I got a little bit to talk uh, about because her dad um, went to prison in, oh gosh, I think it was 2010. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this album came out in 2011. Her dad is in prison for white collar tax crime. I think he had something to do with $40 million that maybe belonged yeah, like to a, like, a, like a Ponzi scheme or something like that. Something going on. He's in corporate tax uh, work. But anyway, I don't believe that she talked about that publicly until the British tabloid press dug it out in like 2016, uh, which we can talk about. But she alludes to her dad being in prison with such clarity in this song. didn't know anything about her dad that lyric's not going to mean anything 
But if right. you do know something, you're like, oh, crap. Like, that's okay. Got it. Like, that's very direct statement. Uh, and then uh, to get back into the keyboard and synth influences on this album, uh, this music comes in uh, about the 130 mark and it's alluring, but it also paints the picture of loss uh, just by the tone of the keys or the Moog or whatever it is. mentioned you know she's got this big blended family how difficult it was for especially her younger siblings to have her dad go to prison which obviously yeah that would be really hard it's one thing i'm sure it's incredibly hard if you're let's see this was 2011 so she's a couple years younger than us so she you know she's 30-ish but it's another thing if you're in your teens which her brothers and sisters were so uh, this is a really tender you know kind of kind of sweet song um that once I read a little bit more about what was going on in her real life, it was like, holy moly, there's so much, so much uh, vulnerability and transparency here that I'm not honestly sure if anyone ever really globbed onto at the time. So there's, yeah. And you know, and when you hear the, when you hear the criticism of her lyrics, not, uh, not being transparent enough, it's like, okay, you may not have known what was going on, but these lyrics are pretty transparent, yeah. you know? Like insanely transparent in retrospect, right. which was like, as as I was having these like moments of realization, I was like, wow, wow, okay, I take back everything I ever thought about. Man, I could use a little more, you know, straightforwardness here. Like it's, it's there. Uh, neutered Fruit, uh, I got... And I have not listened to a lot of ZZ Top, but like a slowed down ZZ Top <laughs> vibe. Uh, but the guitar and the and the drums were were pretty cool. And I feel like you were kind of into this one as well. But for me, it was more musical than than lyrical. you know, I really like the song and the guitar line to me almost has like a, like an hour back feel to it. You know, like it almost sounds like a black keys kind of guitar line going on really kind of lo-fi thing that's happening. You know, it's another song that takes an unexpected turn. You know, I guess at this point I should probably be expecting the unexpected, Um, but you know, her music, it just filled, it's, it's just filled with all these nice surprises. The song is, is, is no exception. And I mean, maybe, I don't know. I mean, it might just be me, you know, maybe it's just that I've listened to, Maybe I haven't listened to enough music to where I could predict what she's going to do next in this in, in these songs, but I just find so many of the moves that she makes to be completely unpredictable. But at the same time, like they fit so well, and it's like and they and they the the fact that she does what she does makes the songs to me like it keeps them interesting. Yeah, and it's really cool how you know lyrically she might be saying one thing, but then like musically there's a counterpoint, and there is in a lot of these tunes like a pivot point. So yeah, I'm definitely picking up what you're putting down i don't know about you but dilettante i liked i thought the music you know definitely had like a meaty fuzz to it that that mm-hmm. grabbed you uh hysterical strength we get like an industrial type uh rhythm that's a preview of what we're going to get a whole lot more of uh in uh, six years in mass seduction two albums from now right um but the the album rapping tune year of the tiger uh and 
2010, when I'm assuming, you know, she's working on this album was uh, the Chinese year of the tiger, but like, I was all about it. And I just loved uh, how it kind of finished up. And I get the sense that you were kind of into it as well. It's a really cool way to end the album, you know, a very down tempo delivery to it. I really love the acoustic guitar accompaniment. You mentioned loving like her vocal delivery. And for me, uh, that's pretty consistent throughout all of her albums, but I really, really like the way that she sings. I love how she seems to like lean into whatever it is that's rattling around in her head. And we kind of talked about that a little bit earlier, but she doesn't seem to carry around shame at all. You know, it's like, and that's, that was, I guess the thing that stuck out to me Uh, because she's willing to reveal the parts of herself that might seem, you know, crazy to the masses. But I mean, she just, you know, she talks about it like, okay, well, this is just, this is just what it is. This is just what my head is like. I love this album. You know, admittedly, I, uh, I love the first half a little bit better than the second, but I think it's really just a truly just a brilliant piece of music. This is definitely, this would definitely be scored an A for me. I mean, an A to an A plus. I just, I think it's great. Yeah, I'm with you. And for me, I think musically, the little, like uh, I mentioned before, like some of the bridges or the interludes that are somehow so emotionally impactful, uh, just really set this album apart. Although I am with you, it did, uh, lose a little bit of momentum on the back half, but Hey, perhaps that was by design. Mm -hmm. Uh, So not, not a fault of the album Uh, next year, 2012, she has this like, um, you know, very well-known cooperative album with David Byrne of the talking heads. We're not going to go too in depth just for time's sake, but they co-wrote it more via email than anything else. Um, But it's very talking headsy. Uh, They had this incredibly brilliant horn section uh, that kind of wrote their own mm-hmm. parts that really complement the the music really well. And this does kind of sound to me, all right, it's like 40% Annie Clark and like 60% David Byrne. Um, but it was super enjoyable. Listen to it a handful of times and would definitely uh, revisit it. If you look at the cover, you're like, what's going on with her face? She's yeah. supposed to, she's got these prosthetics, uh, almost like uh, Angelina Jolie and Maleficent, which I've never yeah, seen, yeah. Uh-huh. but like she's supposed to be the beast of like Beauty and the Beast. And David Byrne is supposed to be like this big, handsome fellow so because i wondered when i saw i was like what the heck is going on on the album cover but that's that's the dealio yeah i mean and i'll touch on it just really quickly as well because i mean i I can't not talk about something that has david byrne in it and i agree with you it does seem like it's kind of a 60 40 thing but i think that very similar when byrne and eno kind of do their thing together it's like it's equal parts david byrne and brian eno when Eno or Byrne does something with somebody else, it's always going to be at least 60% Eno or Byrne. <laughs> you know, it's like, they're just so prolific and they're so good at what they do that their sound comes through. Like you can immediately tell when one of them has had an influence on an album. I remember listening to Strange Mercy and thinking like, I remember thinking before this album came out um, that there was almost like a, a strange connection to the Talking Heads and the way that some of the music was presented. Uh, and then this came out 
there's that like tight frenetic nature, that energetic mm-hmm. nature to a lot of the music. So I, I definitely get that talking heads vibe. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and, you know, and, and I absolutely love the talking heads. Uh, I would love to, uh, and I'm sure this will be a huge arm twist for you. I would love to do a deeper listening on the talking heads. I did a listening project uh, last year uh, with a, with a great friend that, you know, where we went through all of the talking heads catalogs and that was, and that was a lot of fun. And I, you know, I had, I, I had a new favorite that was crowned after doing that. Oh, uh, but that's, that's interesting. Yeah, no, yeah, twist my arm. I'm, I'm on board and we'll definitely <laughs> get, get there at some point in the future. Uh, I think talking head 77, the, the, the first album, uh, I, cause I've also done like a once through of everything. And that's the one that like stood out to me the most, uh, as opposed to some of the other stuff, but yeah, I've got I've got lots of deeper listening uh, room to grow with respect to uh, David Byrne and company. So yeah, sign me up, bro. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So let's go ahead and get into uh, the self titled album in 2014. I guess I'll, I'll let you take the lead on this one. I'm going to do my very 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 best to keep my comments brief about this album, but I love this album. Definitely in my top five <laughs> albums of, of the entire decade. Um, like I, I love this album, so like this this one is up there for me. Top ten. Wow. All right. So interesting, and I mean, this you saw her on this tour, so that's mm-hmm. you know got to be. And I mean, even as someone who only sort of glancingly listened to Saint Vincent, like did a quick one or two run through of each album. Like I remember when this came out because it was like whoa, like the cover. You know, she's got the dyed gray hair. She's wearing these very high fashion, um, you know, dresses. Uh, one of the phrases that was tossed out in the press was uh, like a near future cult leader, which is quite a vibe. <laughs> if you're going to throw that out there for the yeah. masses to consume, it's like, all right, well, there's some intention. Um, I find some of the lyrics to, again, uh, be a little on the guarded side. Uh, although the music continues to evolve and like get more uh, out there and in your face, uh, frenetic, brash, earwormy, energetic, all the synonyms or all the descriptive words that we've used so far. But kind of like on Strange Mercy, there are these moments of deep emotion. And for me, uh, it's often via like a Mellotron or other kind of synthy keyboards, and they really cut deep. I can't think of a ton of artists where like, you know, if we're thinking of a swimming pool, Uh, Maybe like uh, her lyrics are like in the shallow end, but the music is somehow like 12 feet deep and just like really is able to punch me in the gut every once in a while. But yeah, this is an incredible album. And it kind of makes me think back to the, the the first song on the first album where, you know, where, again, if you buy into my idea that she is telling you that, that she is not Annie, right? This album, again, you go from Strange Mercy to this. And you said it, I mean, it's, you know, you go from an album that is kind of an introverted album to this, which is very much not introverted. You can't be a near future cult leader if you're not uh, <laughs> going to be a little extroverted. So yeah, she's done a little bit of a pivot here. Yeah, for sure. And so it's like, you know, you have somebody that has written the album before this and then come in and done this and it's completely different, you know? So it's like, she shapeshifts once again and, and into this album. So, you know, so, and then with Rattlesnake, like you're immediate, you immediately hear the influence of, of, of her writing music with David Byrne, you know, when you, when you listen to the song. Yeah. 
the opening cut, Rattlesnake, you know, I don't know that you can come up with enough superlatives to talk about how much I genuinely love this album. Like, it's it's just, I love it. But when I rank my top albums of the decade, this album was in my top 10. I think it might have been even been in my top five. I'll have to, I'll have to go back and look at that. Wow. But I mean, there's something about it to me that just, that speaks to me on a very deep level. Her vocal treatment on this album harkens back to Chloe in the Afternoon uh, with a kind of like underwater sound. Uh, she goes for that a couple of times. There's a lot of fuzz. You know, there's a lot of synth, a lot of phasers. You know, you're clear right away that she's bringing a, a different energy into this album. Watching her play this stuff live, you walk away with two impressions. One, that she really likes playing music, <laughs> you know, and then... She also like really, you know, she really leans in and really loves how like hard some of these songs rock, you know, because like you can tell when she's on stage and she's playing some of these songs that are like really in your face that she is like into it. I love Rattlesnake. And of course, as I often do, I was listening to a lot of this stuff, mountain biking in the desert, and I've come across a rattlesnake or two. And I was just sort of chuckling to myself. It's like when you're zipping along at 20 miles per hour, literally in the middle of nowhere, you're like, is that a stick? Is that a rattlesnake? So it was just kind of funny imagery to be listening to. But I love how her lyrics and the guitar kind of mimic each other in this song. They kind of follow each other, uh, which which was kind of a cool thing to notice. And then birth and reverse, it's like, all right, more manic rhythms. Uh, and the guitar really weaves kind of throughout the songs. So it's almost like things are melding together, but just in this kind of unique uh, frenetic way as we kick off the album here. Yeah, you know, there's a couple of things that she pulls off in this song that are just so cool. You know, there's this breakdown where her guitar almost sounds like a slap bass and the drumming goes into double time. And it's one of these, it's one of those things that I could just imagine everyone in the studio hearing this for the first time and being like, oh my God, that's so cool. <laughs> you know? This song reminds me of uh, the Depeche Mode song, Policy of Truth. And okay. Not in that they sound the same, but it's the same vibe for me. Um, you know, the first time that I heard Policy of Truth and the way that they pulled that together and that line that's in there, like, you know, like this kind of like walking line that's in that song, that guitar line. And I remember thinking like, man, when they wrote the song, they were standing in the studio and they had to have been like, we are the coolest you know so and i that's what i imagine with birth and reverse when she pulls off this this just unbelievably cool line in the song like she had to have like you know like put the guitar down and been like yes that was awesome <laughs> i've still got it i gotta tell you man i'm gonna edit uh, a snippet of policy of truth into the podcast here I've ever heard it. I'm a Depeche oh, okay. Mode kind of noob, so I'm looking forward to that uh, for sure. Then, total shift here, we go into Prince Johnny, uh, a, a John song, Marry mm -hmm. Me John from the uh, debut album, Your Influence Again, John Prue, <laughs> writing about you. Uh, but it's like slow and syrupy and like a little drum machine-y. So you pray to all. 
this song has been compared a lot to Lou Reed's uh, Take a Walk on the Wild Side. And I think it's meant to depict like the gritty side of New York City. Right. Um, so she describes the character in the song as being somebody who is charming, but like hopelessly self-destructive, uh, you know, somebody who's fallen into like the darker side of like the queer scene in the city. So like Prince Johnny is a friend. Um, it's about those. Fa- this is a quote from from an interview that she did. Right. It says uh, Prince Johnny is a friend. It's about those fabulous New York nights. You only get with the kind of people who flee their hometowns and come to a place like New York to reinvent themselves. I really like that quote the idea of like this could only happen with people who are you know leaving something behind and in search of something else i thought that was like really cool vivid imagery yeah really interesting and wouldn't it be something john or should i call you prince johnny (laughs) if she took this idea of a gritty new york city vibe and perhaps made an entire album about it later in her future career wouldn't that be crazy oh wouldn't that be odd (laughs) (laughs) yeah we'll we'll get to daddy's home in in just a little bit uh the one of the strengths about uh, the self-titled album is that even the tracks that like don't necessarily jump off the page for me like they got a lot to offer and like huey.newton that's one of those songs for me it's like this military little drum shuffle a squirmy keyboard uh, that's kind of woven throughout the song. Think the lyrics are kind of painting a picture of like disaffected modern life but all the Mellotron at the two minute mark before we just get slapped in the face with more sizzling, beastly, fuzzy guitar. It's like musically, yes, I am here for it. Even if lyrically, it's a little more meh for me. I mean, and Justin, like, seriously, how many genres do you think are influencing this song when you listen to it? This seems just like remarkably fresh to me. You know, like who else is writing music like this? I mean, and this is, you know, even now it's it's been, what, eight years since this album came out? And it's still like you you hear this and you're like, I mean, still, like nobody's doing this. Like this, it's it's such a cool thing. Her guitar sounds like it's being, it's being uh, like fed through like a, like a fuzz, you know, distortion pedal. But then like, the fuzz box is then being fed, fed through like melting wax. It is wild. I mean, we need like a Trey's guitar rig type website. Yeah, uh, for sure. Where, where we just figure out how is she making these sounds because it's really impressive and just something that's like so over my head and so beyond my pay grade. Um, yeah, I mean, like her guitar tone in this in this song is so dirty. You know what I mean? Like it's just it's so it's so good. You got to check it out. Like if you haven't, if you haven't heard this album, please go listen to this thing. Like that's the whole purpose of this podcast is to get people to listen to music. Right. And like this album, you know, I'm having a difficult time containing my excitement about this album. And it's, it's with good reason. Like to me, it's just a complete masterpiece. Yeah. And like, that's how digital witness made me feel. Uh, I feel like this is like, boom, this is the St. Vincent song of all songs. Uh, you get the horns uh, out front, so that burn influence, although to her credit, she did have some horns 
in Strange Mercy before the David Byrne collab came out. Um, but the line, people turn the TV on, it looks just like a window. Yeah. I just love everything about that. Uh, just especially the yeah part. It's just so kind of interesting and almost funny. feels brisk this song manages to accomplish uh, like feeling energetic but without necessarily like that tight frenetic nature that we get from a lot of her tunes so i don't know if that's one of the reasons why it's elevated for me but humongous fan of digital witness i really could go on and on and on about the song i think that i'll just very briefly say if i have a favorite saint vincent song it's this one you Mm -hmm. know the other thing about it is it is bonkers live like, it's so, so good live. And you did mention the horns that are on this. And it's actually uh, Ralph Carney is the one that does the, who's like the avant-garde, like jazz uh, guy. Um, you know, he does like a lot of experimental music. You okay. would, if you're not familiar with him, look him up. You, like he, okay. he's done, he's done some stuff that you'll recognize. He's the one that does, that does the horns on this track. Uh, but yeah, I mean, oh God, it's just, it's so cool. It's yeah. such a good song. Uh, so funny though, to, it, we go to the next song, Regret, and this still makes me think of like a Green Day song. I didn't bother to look up which Dookie song it reminded me of, but it's like, <laughs> it's got that melody. Morning, open, let in, what's so terrifying? But then, of course, because it's St. Vincent, we go in entirely different directions. And I love the ethereal, who's the one all by yourself uh, chorus. But she also slips in the word animal. And that feels like a reference to maybe her dad in a jail cell. Uh, At least that's kind of what I got out of it. And then the Mellotron uh, that's also like snuck into the chorus really, really grabbed my ears. So superb from start to finish. I hear all kinds of stuff going on in this one. I hear like some early Beck happening. I hear hip hop in this. I hear almost like a John Bonham style, like drumming to this. I feel like the indie influence, um, you know, is definitely there. You could definitely hear some talking heads in there, almost like clear, like penny lane stylings to, to this music. I mean, like there's so much stuff happening. And, and, and it's one of the things that I think is so masterful about this album is how many truly different concepts are being pulled together all at once. And we have mentioned this idea of a near future cult leader. Well, here's the song that's going to get you to blindly (laughs) pledge your allegiance to Annie Clark. Bring me your loves. Uh, I didn't necessarily even like want to like this song uh, when I first heard it. Oh. 
and she also sneaks in uh, I thought you were like a dog which obviously brought me right back to our Fiona Apple episode um, Idler Wheel her saying oh I looked at you and you when your eyes were closed and you look just like a dog um, so always funny to connect totally random dots whether it's St. Vincent to Fiona Apple or St. Vincent back to Funkadelic uh, I don't know if we could do that with Pearl Jam although I guess I did say that with putting the bangers first although that's probably more universal right. than, than necessarily a PJ influence but uh, great great tune here and you mentioned uh, you've made an hour back Dan Auerbach reference uh, Nashville their Black Keys are like a Nashville yep. band even though they're Akron or originated uh, well, same with this influence here. Yeah. So, I mean, this, this to me, it sounds like a white stripe song just with a little bit more full production. Um, you know, I mean that in a great way. I love the white stripes and you're right because Jack White has, you know, the, what is it? The third man studios that's right yeah, outside third of man Nashville. Records. And like you, if you ever go to Nashville, I'll tell you where Jack White's house is because it's kind of public information. It's on a main, it's on a main dragon. I, we know, we know they're from Detroit. Relax. We're not saying that <laughs> the white stripes started in Nashville, but uh, it is kind of fun to like draw these connections to these big other indie acts uh, for sure. Uh, and it's funny that you mentioned it too, because my first thought when I heard this was our discussion, you know, on the, on the Fiona Apple dog lyrics. So when I went back and listened to this, like, you know, now when I hear a dog reference in a song, I immediately go back to us, you know, right. talking about our, 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 our different take on the, on the dog thing. But I think right. it's pretty clear what she means, what she means in this one. Uh, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Because again, she's the near future cult leader here. So <laughs> yes, go, go fetch her something. Uh, you are at her service. Uh, I liked Every Tear Disappears. Uh, kind of had uh, a same vibe. I do like on her albums how she structures them, how songs will be connected in one way or the other. And even here, it's just kind of as general as like the overall, uh, like industrial kind of heavy synthy vibe. But when you dig into the lyrics, this sounds to me like a pep talk to her future self while she's actively in kind of a down and out phase. Uh, and I got some of that vulnerability and transparency, which I like was so desperately longing for in my initial listens. Although, as we've said, it kind of comes out more and more uh, the deeper you go. But I thought it was really cool. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I really like it too. And this was one of those songs where it definitely reminds me of something else, but this was one where I just couldn't figure out what the something else was. And this happened with Pearl Jam, I think, where there was a, a song where I literally went on like a three hour journey to try to figure out that it was actually like uh, an arcade fire song or something like that, that the, the, the <laughs> line of the song reminded me of. And I was like, Oh, I got it with this one. I never could figure, I couldn't, I never could uh, connect the dots with it. And and now I've, I've gone back and listened to it a couple of times. And every time I'm like, Oh, this sounds like something. So maybe one day I'll figure out what that is. Yeah. I'm going to have to give it a couple of focus lists and see if I can dig anything up to save you from like <laughs> devolving <laughs> into manic, like depraved madness. Well, maybe that was her idea, right? I mean, she's singing to me anyway. So why would she not also try to, to spiral me into madness? Yeah. Prince Johnny, you probably deserve <laughs> whatever you got coming to you. I'm, uh, I'm sure. I, I like how it uh, ends uh, on uh, like a, 
a little bit of a slow note, kind of like Strange Mercy ended on a, a slower note with The Year of the Tiger, but Severed Crossed Fingers, Mellotron. Apparently, I love the Mellotron. I yeah, you really I was do, a, man. <laughs> I thought I was like a vibraphone nut after all those Fiona Apple albums, but uh, yeah, put me in the Mellotron category really speaks to me. was a really classy finish to an album that was just packed with energy and kind of bursting at the seams. Not a lot of slow moments on this one. No, but the, but the slow moments that are there are, you know, are really well placed and really well done. And, you know, and I guess to go back to the, to the Mellotron thing, it's like, you know, hearing a, a, an instrument that you don't always hear in popular music done really, really well, it's hard not to love that. You know, it's almost like, it's like, oh, hello, new best friend. You know, like when yeah. you're, when you're listening to this music and it's, you know, and that's one of the things that's so cool about doing these deep dives is that, you know, it gives you an appreciation for something that, that maybe, you know, I would have never, you know, found myself to be a, a you know, a, a Mellotron fan, you know, right. but at the same time, it's like listening to it and this, it's like, oh, I dig this, like this, this album would not be as good without it. Well, let's take that idea and let's roll into Mass Seduction, which I'm just going to come out and say it. This was my favorite album of hers. And I know you disagree, but I want to draw the comparison to how Centipede Hurts was your favorite Animal Collective album. Uh, I just feel like this kind of has that dense, layered, uh, very intentional, purposeful vibe to it. I'm not a big pop guy, Um but if, if this is what's going on in pop music and the producer that is on board here, Jack Antonoff, who works, worked with Taylor Swift, has worked with Lord, like, sign me up. I was more than pleased with everything we've heard from St. Vincent so far. But for whatever reason, this was the album where I'm like, I'm going to turn this up a little louder in the car. And every single like layer of sound that I hear is going to speak to me. Now this came out in 2017. She's obviously like on a, on another level of fame after the self-titled 2014 kind of breakout, even though she was already critically acclaimed long before that. So she's dating uh, this British model and actor. Uh, so she found herself in the middle of like the British tabloids, which as we know are crazy. I mean, if you're, not Prince Johnny, but Prince Harry. And you're like, actually, we're going to leave and go to another country. Like, you know, I feel like the reputation of crazy British tabloids, like you don't want to be in their sights, but here we go. Annie Clark is like in their sights as she's dating this actress. She uh, has said that this is her most kind of personal or vulnerable album. And I thought that like coded or cloaked in this veneer of pop, heavy, intense music, that that was like kind of a cool um, meeting of, of two different things. But Hang On Me, the opening track, wow. Yeah, so hang on. sliding thumping bass it's almost like uh, you're hearing her sing a song to herself at like the end of a long crazy night uh, whisper quiet lyrics 
you and me are not for this world. It's like an all time classic, like, oh, I guess we're going to break up soon kind of a song. Uh, but then we get into like the real banger and that is Pills. This did remind me of a couple of albums uh, go Surgeon, where she's talking yeah. about pills and being in bed. But this is uh, a little more like uh, purposeful and a little more out front about it. Uh, but this is pop production that's going to hit you in the over the head. Uh, frenetic, energetic, infectious, all the adjectives that I've been using to describe her music. And then a pivot at the two minute and 50 second mark, as she is wont to do, where we get strummed guitar, soothing lyrics, but it only lasts for like a little bit. know anything about pills but it almost feels like the song mimics like the excitement for where you're going to take them uh and then there's like that brief moment of peacefulness and then there's like uh, the come down and we get that and you had mentioned ralph carney which is totally new to me well kamasi washington is playing saxophone on the end of this album and his big major label debut album didn't come out uh, until the next year so shout out to you know annie clark for being down with what the cool kids are into. Uh, With this particular song, um, you know, this is one of those songs that I really like it, but I'm not exactly sure why. If that makes sense. Like, it's not something that I would typically like listen to and, you know, the pills, 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 you know, when when all that's going on, like I wouldn't necessarily always be into that, but man, like when she does it, I'm like, okay, yeah, this is cool. I'm into it. And I will say this and, you know, in comparison that you made to centipede hurts, right? Mm -hmm. Like if this is your favorite St. Vincent album, I think that's a very respectable pick. It's just a different, I just have a little bit of a different taste with it. I still think this album is like a solid a, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It wasn't as high up on my, on my rankings as yours, but I think this is a great album. Like it's, it's really, really well done. As we talked about the near future cult leader kind of vision board vibe for the self-titled album, I'm not making this up. The vision board vibe for Mass Seduction is dystopian dominatrix. Uh, And Mass Seduction is that vibe, uh, but put into a song. Thumping pop production. This is like, I'm going to roll down the windows and just crank it to let the bass do its thing. And I love the wailing guitar that kind of wraps this song up. Yeah, you know, for, with this one, I understand why they named the album after this song. I mean, this song rocks hard. You know, it's a really, really cool song. I also really enjoy watching videos of her performing this live. And part of that goes back to this dystopian dominatrix. It's like some of that idea comes through in the live performance of this, you know, where it's like, 
she like makes a she makes that part of the live show and you and know she's like wearing crazy outfits and all this yeah. like leathery you know uh has this like uh plasticky veneer to mm-hmm. her it's very much like not just like oh i was hanging out in the green room and then i came out to play some songs you know this is a, no. a full-on like artistic production and not just the music and i remember reading interviews about the tour for this for this album and like she had such a heavy hand in all of the different artistic decisions that went into the actual performance itself, you know, let alone the music. But it was something where when you look at it, it's like the the other members of the band are like dressed in like these white outfits, like white head to toe, like faces covered. It's either white or black. Now, now that I'm thinking about it, I'll, you know, I'll, I can't remember if it's white or black, but it's like sing, single solid color. Like, so it's like they're meant to be, you know, I guess the... I don't know the subs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Where where it's like it's just, I couldn't tell you who Annie Clark's drummer is or who her bass no. player is. No, That's, but I think that it, it it fits the theme of what she's going on here. Where it's like if she is the dominatrix, like these like the band members are like the submissives, like in this and <laughs> and this in the way that she sets up the stage show. So it is something like definitely check out a YouTube video of a performance of from this album because it's really really cool. And I would imagine that, you know, as we get into like Sugar Boy, it's like, I don't even know why I like this. This doesn't sound like something that I would necessarily like, but it's just the music is just like irresistible. It's like 90 mile per hour speed disco. love that midway through the song there's a melodic tease ahead to the next track los ageless which my 40 year old eyes were just reading as straight los angeles when i was like listening to all these um but of course you know we love a love a good tease we'll note it in the set list here we are middle of the album track five and like we're still uh, we haven't let off the gas at all and this chorus how can anybody have you and lose you and not lose their minds too uh it's just kind of like this emotional antidote to this throbbing beat Uh, and then we get a little pedal steel in the mix at the end of this track what we're like in some future dystopian dominatrix but cool someone's playing the pedal steel and i'm all about it yeah, for sure. I mean, and, you know, and I don't know why I keep thinking of Depeche Mode when I'm listening to her music because I'm not a big Depeche Mode fan. Like I've maybe <laughs> maybe heard two of her albums, two of their albums, um, but like I don't know if this was an influence of hers or not. But to me, it really comes through that it seems like it would. That it, I don't know. It seems like her list of influences is basically endless. But I definitely think that that they have to be on it because of the way that some of these songs are structured. But this was probably my favorite song on this entire album. This was one of my favorite songs in her entire catalog. I really like this song. This tees up uh, another uh, Johnny song, uh, Happy Birthday, Johnny. Uh, And this really had me thinking, okay, John, 
uh, if it's not you, uh, maybe it is like more of a John Doe, just kind of like fill in the blank sort of a character, because here we are in this like uh, emotive ballad, quite the contrast from the industrial techno pop that we've been doing. Um, and we get this lyrical reveal that Johnny's living on the streets. It's really kind of a gut punch. And then just like the last song, we do get this pedal steel that sort of snuck in there, uh, which really kind of accomplishes a lot emotionally. You know, she was asked again in interviews, uh, you know, after this after this album came out, if it's the same character from the previous albums. And of course, she completely dances around the question every single time, Um, you know, and basically, yeah, I mean, she gives the if that's what it means to you, you know, kind of answer on multiple occasions. But, you know, it is kind of an interesting thread throughout throughout her music there. And we've talked about this like dystopian dominatrix because it's a fun description, but track seven savior. This, this is that song. You dress me up in a nurse's outfit. It rides and sticks to my thighs and my hips. It's like these punchy tight lyrics, but then the chorus pivots in a totally different direction. And it's the sprawling, uh, begging, uh, vulnerable. But then you say, These musical turns that she's able to make are just, as I've said before, they're like these emotional gut punches. And if you're scoring at home, I mean, as far as I see it, we're like a firm seven out of seven here. Uh, And we're more than halfway through the album, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, for sure. And then, you know, it moves into the next song on the album with, uh, you know, with New York, which is just legitimately, it's just an incredible song all the way around. Lyrics are great. Musical content is great. It is probably one of the one of her better written songs in her in her entire catalog of it. It's it's really it's legitimately beautiful. New love wasn't true love back to you, love. So much for a home run with some blue blood. If I last drawn you on I've been doing And because it's such a great song it's no problem whatsoever that we're going from 90 miles per hour like down to 35 miles per hour just because it's such a great song totally agree as we head to the end of this album uh, we get kind of a little bit of a moody sad turn um we still have the crashing industrial music to keep the energy going this song young lover apparently about her uh, now former girlfriend's addiction issues um, the singing theatrics at the end of the song kind of reemphasize the fact that her voice is incredibly powerful. It's almost like, like we're on a team with Michael Jordan or LeBron James, and you just sort of uh, almost take for granted like how incredibly talented they are, because there is not a spot across any of her albums where vocally I'm thinking, eh, I want a little more, I want a little bit more. Like she's hitting home runs vocally. Uh, across her entire catalog. Yeah, 
can totally understand your point of criticism that it's like, okay, wow. Like, what is this like 19, like 82 Berlin, like enough with the industrial, like techno (laughs) music, like lay off. Yeah, no, at this point in the album, I'm, I'm, I've gotten wary of like the, the droning industrial beats just because it's, I can appreciate it for what it is, but it's like, you know, and that, and I think that that was probably while there's some of my favorite songs in her entire catalog are on this album. I think it's probably why for my personal rating system, I rate this album a little bit lower just because like that to me got old. Which I think is interesting because that'll probably mirror some of the critiques from Daddy's Home. How it's like, okay, yeah, we're like in one specific sonic palette and we're just spending a whole lot of time there. And yeah, I could see how that would kind of wear wear after a little while. I do like the last track, Smoking Section. Uh, Bummer of a song. Was this her third album in a row? Uh, Maybe even (laughs) more if we went back a little farther where like she's ending things on kind of like kind of a down note. But here's some random lyrics for you that the geography nerd in me was like, oh yeah, give me more. And sometimes I feel like an inland ocean Too big to be a lake Too small to be an attraction And when to wander in And start to flail a bit I let it happen, let it happen, let it happen there's something very specific from the recesses of her brain that I don't think anyone else would have written perhaps in the course of like decades of music music making. (laughs) We need more songs about small inland bodies of water that are underappreciated. But I I just thought it was really great, really kind of painted a picture and we get a little more pedal steel at the end of the album as she sings, it's not the end when clearly uh, it's the end. And I just really liked Uh, sort of how those two disparate ideas kind of met up to wrap up this album. The line, sometimes I go to the edge of my roof, I think I'll jump just to punish you. Heavy stuff. Yeah, you know what I mean? And it's like... You don't have those kind of thoughts unless things are not going well. Exactly. Things are not not great in that that scenario. All right. So with your permission, let's fast forward to, to... uh, or the release from three weeks ago from, from, or two weeks ago, whatever it was now with, uh, with daddy's home. Yeah. I mean, so dad is out of prison. He's been out for a couple of years. Um, but she said that it's not just about him. It's also about kind of self evolution. Uh, and as we mentioned, instead of zigging and zagging across musical styles from song to song, uh, kind of like how mass seduction, she sort of stuck with one theme. Uh, maybe that's the influence of that producer, Jack Antonoff. She's definitely sticking with one theme here, uh, that loose 70s vibe, that kind of New York uh, sort of gritty uh, sort of feel. And uh, John, I don't know about you, uh, but I like Pink Floyd. I like Steely Dan. And I do think that that Stevie Wonder is pretty talented. And those musical <laughs> influences are like coming out in some of these songs. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, when you when you start out with with pay your way in pain, you know, that was uh, it was one of the the I guess the singles or whatever that dropped early. Um, and man, like I was like into it right away. Yeah. 
you know, there was no doubt that it was St. Vincent, but you know, she does such a great job of like, of just telling a story. Like you really kind of feel like the frantic nature of everything that, you know, that she relies on, like suddenly vanishing as the song goes on, like, you know, with the lyrical content, it's such a cool album opener. And this to me was the thing on the album that sounded the most like St. Vincent. And I guess in like a classical sense. And she's got the backing uh, singers with her who are incredibly talented and kind of like the sneaky uh, MVPs of this album, or at least something on this album that's totally different from all of her other musical output. You know, she's singing, what do you want? Or they're singing, what do you want? What do you want? And she's singing, I want to be loved. And it's like, that's a pretty great thesis statement uh, for I think a lot of like the emotional territory that she's exploring. And down and out downtown, second track. Uh, well, hello, there's like a little sitar or at least some sort of sitar uh, influence on her guitar playing. And this is definitely like painting the picture of tough times in New York in the 70s. Yeah, you know, and, and I definitely hear like, a you know, the homage uh, to, to Steely Dan in this one. Uh, I love the production on this song. You know, I think we're off to like just a really, really good start. It almost has like a super fly kind of like Curtis Mayfield swing to the rhythm section, which I really like, you know, bongos underneath the, ent- the entire thing. I, just, I thought the song was awesome. Loved it. Yeah. Super listenable and also like maybe a little uh, easier uh sort of point of entry to these songs so you don't have to be a saint vincent fan to be like yeah i like this like i feel like anybody could hear this and be like all right cool it's a long way And then we get this kind of loungy vibe uh, where uh, she's talking about daddy. I mean, title track here, daddy's home. And she says, and this was like a woof, dang, kind of a moment for me. Yeah, you did some time while I did some time too. And she's got these guttural screams in the middle of the song. And I'm sure that's emblematic of like the release she felt, you know, when her dad is finally released from prison here 10 years nine years later uh but also it's probably representative of like how freaking hard that was for her uh you know a decade with without your dad uh, i'm sure that you know that's really challenging here but uh, the loungy vibe here is just kind of like she'll wear musical costumes as we've discussed but i feel like this is like a pretty pretty thick musical coat that she's got on here yeah, I agree. And I mean, man, the lyrics to this one, I mean, boy, the, the shade in this one, right? You know, I'm going to go ahead and say that she probably still has some feelings about her dad going to prison. Um, yeah. You know, like that comes through very, very clearly. I'm naming you know, the album Daddy's Home and he's like, I'm honored. I'm flattered. And then he listens yeah. to the song Daddy's Home. He's like, ooh, okay. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. Uh, but yeah, like the Steely Dan influence, again, is certainly front and center uh, in this track too. The keys have to be, you know, meant to directly mimic Donald Fagan in, in this one. Mm-hmm. 
great, great track. Uh, and then Live in the Dream, very, very, very overt Pink Floyd vibes. Like it starts off um, almost like very similarly to Us and Them from Dark Side of the Moon. And we've got these, you know, David Gilmore guitar riffs uh, across the end of the song. It's like super slow, super patient. It was probably one of the longest tracks on the album. And I had read that this was about like, you've got to stay grounded even as you're sort of giving yourself up in uh, pursuit of these higher artistic efforts. And I thought that was like pretty cool. Cause I listened to this and I wasn't necessarily sure what she was aimed for. And sometimes it does help to like read these interviews and hear it straight from the source. I got the same vibe that you did with the us and them. It's like, Oh, hello, Pink Floyd. Um, You know, it's such a different take from St. Vincent, you know, and to venture into completely uncharted territory as an artist and pull this off as well as she did is just a complete Testament to her genius as a writer. And, and, and frankly, as a musician, the strings here are just extremely well-placed, you know, this understated sparse guitar solo, you know, again, it's totally new territory. And some of these lines sound like, you know, uh, Walter Becker is playing them. You know, some of them sound like David Gilmore is playing them, you know, like inject this directly into my veins. Like this is, this song is in no hurry to get anywhere yet. It goes everywhere at the same time. I absolutely love this one. This is probably the longest song in her entire catalog, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. I think that's it clocks a- in at like seven minutes. I mean, it's it's a long song. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think the next song, The Melting of the Sun, uh, which she played uh, on Saturday Night Live. And to be honest, like I caught that performance and heard the two singles. And I was kind of, this was like right when we were starting our listening project. And I was kind of like, eh. But after hearing the album, I love it. This is probably my favorite uh, musical track from this album although there's a song a little later on that was a little more of a gut punch for me but I love the back and forth with the backup singers again this is an element that we haven't had access to in any of her prior work because she didn't have backup singers and she literally references hello on the dark side of the moon so it's not like we're trying to be coy with the 70s references right. she name drops Joni Mitchell Marilyn Monroe Tori Amos uh, Nina Simone, uh, which reminded me of this random Duncan Sheik track from the mid aughts called That Says It All, which where he like literally name drops every big musician you've ever heard of. But I, I, I like it when we get these little homages and they're not like cloaked or veiled. I kind of think it's cool when an artist is like, yeah, no, this is who I think is cool because that's not something yeah. we have access to a lot of times. Yeah, the Fleet Foxes did that on uh, on one of their albums off of their most recent album called Shore, and they oh. they name drop a bunch of people off of it, which, you know, I know that it's like just such a stereotypical like 40 year old white guy album to love but god i love that album um it was and, good you know, I, need, I need to listen to it a few more times I, I i definitely dug it when i heard it once or twice but i need to revisit it and i'll have to listen for that track especially i have been on, on like at least for a time for a time i was on like a mission to get people to appreciate that album uh, that one was was <laughs> one of my was really one of my favorites from last year i think it was if it wasn't at the very top of my list, it was, it was, you know, number two or three. I mean, it was, it was up there. I love Shore. I thought that was a really cool album. Hmm, there um, you go. And then, you know, with Melting of the Sun, like, yeah, dude, like five for five. This is a great song. 
you know, she's off to a great start with this album. It's just the melting of the sun. these little humming interludes that are like a track listed on the album and like maybe we're sort of moving in a slightly different direction um but the laughing man uh, more pink floyd vibes uh you know we talked about that line on the end of the prior album sometimes i go to the edge of my roof i think i'll jump just to punish you in smoking section well she literally talks in the laughing man uh, about like reflecting back on childhood half pipes and playstations suicidal ideations uh which you know kind of struck a, a a note with me connected some dots and she says if life's a joke then i'm dying laughing which could be interpreted so many different ways but i thought was you know, really cool i know you're gone I know you know exactly what I mean. You know, she never really leaves the whole 70s, like soft rock, psychedelic rock, soul music kind of vibe that's going on. Um, but the theme definitely kind of shifts with this song. You know, and I really liked it. I thought it, I thought it was a cool song. Yeah. And then we get kind of like an in your face sort of a track uh, called Down. And it almost felt like we're leaning back into uh, like the muscled pop production from Mass Seduction, except. We have sitar in the mix now, uh, but kind of like an angry diss track as far as I could tell. The rhythm section takes like center stage in the song. It really, it really is like driving the groove forward on top of like a lot of incredible keyboard tones. This entire album is just chock full of incredible production and what I consider to be really some of the best instrumental tones that she's ever achieved on any of her records. Like she really pulls off like some really, really cool tones, uh, guitar, guitar tones, keyboard tones in particular. Uh, this track in particular seems kind of like a melting of all the albums distilled into, in, into one track, you know, with, with down, you know, the hair on my arms was literally standing on end by the end of this track. Like I just, I, I loved it. And we go from like that kind of intensity uh, to like a little more of a delicate vibe. I was thinking Bell and Sebastian uh, on the track, Somebody Like Me. white clip on the wings climb high to the top of a building and best i could tell and who knows if i'm anywhere close i think this is about how we delude ourselves at the onset of a relationship into thinking this is the time that i'm gonna i'm gonna be the best version of me i'm sure my partner will be the best version of themselves and it's all gonna work out great although we know how that 
generally tends to evolve as life gets in the way. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and this is something that, you know, (laughs) I've talked about this with a few people before, like, this is the part of the relationship where you send the representative, you know what I mean? Like you're sending the best version of yourself, you know, and like, and so it's like, it's just, I think it's, it's a part of, of a lot of like early dating and stuff like that, where it's like, you know, you're not, you're not ready to give them the full crazy yet. So you, <laughs> so you send the representative who like brings, you know, like, Oh, this is the best version of me. I hope you, I hope you're into it. And I love how that's probably not even like super intentionally, uh, you know, misleading. Like I think we buy into that ourselves. Oh yeah. Like, for you're, sure. You're like, just so excited. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's, I think that's what's going on. And, you know, in this, in this one, for sure, Yeah, you know, and little pedal seal got thrown in there, which, you know, not not bad. Exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. And then my baby wants a baby. So this definitely has like a a period vibe to it. Uh, Slowed down take on the 1981 Sheena Easton song, Morning Train 9 to 5, which after a little research, it's totally separate from the Dolly Parton 9 to 5 song Mm -hmm. that came out just the year before in 1980. Um, But I like how she is lyrically vulnerable. She's talking about her fears, like, oh, having a family, would get in the way of what I'm trying to do professionally, but it also kind of goes both directions because you could read it as like, well, if I don't have a family and who's going to care about my legacy anyway, or at least who that I care about is going to care about my legacy. So I thought this was, you know, pretty cool. And like, we haven't heard, even though she's, you know, what in 2021, like approaching 40. Uh, so we're, now we're getting the like, Oh, okay. Mother type vibe should i shouldn't i so kind of interesting there yeah no for sure and I, you know i'm sure i mean you said it right i'm sure that sheena easton probably has something to say about this song um, <laughs> i can't imagine anything other than this track being completely inspired by the feel of that one I definitely appreciate the slightly more psychedelic version that's presented here, which is essentially what I amount this song to, to being uh, the, the, the choir part of the song is like, especially powerful too. Like there's, there's a lot of cool things that are, that are going on. And I mentioned melting of the sun was probably my favorite like song on this album, but the track at the holiday party was the one that hit the deepest for me. Uh, we have some horns, which is a nice little touch, a little thoughtful, a little tender, um, it's about watching a friend struggle. She sings about the pharmacy in her purse, the friend's purse, and pretending to want those things. So no one sees you not getting what you need, which struck me as like a really succinct and potent summarization of like why people even ever get into destructive behaviors in the first place. You know, they're not getting what they need. Pretend to want these things. Sees you not getting, not getting what. 
this was a callback to me to pay your way in pain. What do you want? Mm-hmm. I want to be loved. That, well, you know, that's, that's what we want as humans. And this song is about seeing a loved one struggle, but like loving them enough uh, to kind of be there forcefully for them. And the song ends with this upbeat chorus of you can't hide. You can't hide from me. So it's like, no, I'm going to be there for you. This was like in traffic, <laughs> driving around, listening to this for the first time. I was like, hot damn, she's done it again. <laughs> yeah, this was one actually for me that on first listen didn't particularly strike me. Um, but now it's it's a complete just I can't skip it. You know, um, my first impression of this album is that there's a lot of good music mixed in with uh uh, with a, with you know largely a lot of skippable tracks that was my first overall impression oh, like of what, after first listen yeah 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 you know what i mean it was like i was like yeah there's some good, good music in there there's a lot of stuff that i would skip that's how i felt too to be honest and then like by listen three or listen four it's like no i, I like that track more than i thought i did for so many tracks and my experience with this was by the time that I listened to the album the third time, I got to a place to where there's not a single track on this album that I'm willing to skip. You know, it's like, I want to listen to this album as a complete piece of music. And uh, that is kind of a rarity for me where it's like, I appreciate the album more as a complete piece of music than I do as a collection of tracks. Whereas even some of the other stuff of hers that I really like, you know, I, I think of it more as a collection of tracks as opposed to a complete piece of music. Um, you know, even though even though the themes are are so obvious, you know, throughout there that they are thematically different. But this 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 whole album really got to a place with me where I was like, OK, like I, I love this album start to finish. Yeah, I was a really big fan. I think, you know, the, the sonic palette had a lot to do with it, but also like she does get into some vulnerable uh, territory, which, you know, was what I was kind of hungry for more of when I first approached this St. Vincent listening project. So I was a big fan of it. Although I will say like Candy Darling, the last track, I was like, hey, okay. But a nice little slow syrupy sort of a love song or an ode uh, to uh, this person who is like a real person from the 70s in in New York. So a nice way to wrap up this album. Now, I know you like this album more than I like this album, but like I was a fan. So why don't we get into our rankings? I've already said Mass Seduction totally out of left field for me ended up being my favorites. Um, but I will say like next up, we have a lot of our stuff bunched up together and it's hard for me to really pick and choose or delineate too much. And I'm talking uh, marry me, the self-titled 2014 album, strange mercy and daddy's home. Those are all pretty much on the same level. You could kind of put them in a different order if you wanted to. Uh, but really really impressive like at mass seduction and a i'll give marry me the self-titled strange mercy and daddy's home like an a minus and then for actor uh a b plus so that those are pretty good marks like that's a report card you'd be happy to bring home to dad if he ever gets out of prison at some point 
<laughs> for sure. So, you know, for me, I had, uh, I broke it up into, into three tiers, essentially. Uh, tier one was tier one A and tier one B. So tier one A for me is the self-titled album. I think that that is, I think that's the masterpiece of her collection, at least to my ears. And then I also really put uh, Marry Me in the same category. I think both of those albums are just completely brilliant. Uh, the more I went back and listened to Marry Me, the more at the beginning when I listened to it, it was more that Paris is burning and, uh, and now, now were the two songs that I really went back to a lot. And then I really went back and started listening to the rest of it and just, and really just love the whole thing. Um, you know, tier one B for me was daddy's home. I, I like, I liked it so much that I would put it up there with, with her best work. Wow. Um, and then for me, tier two, um, which again, I mean, if we're talking, you know, tier one, A and B, I mean, like these are A and A plus albums, right? Mm-hmm. Or really, I guess they're all three kind of A plus albums to me. Uh, tier two is Strange Mercy and Mass Seduction, which are still A albums. You know what yeah. I mean? Like they're they're great albums. And then the tier three for me was Actor. Um, you know, and and I guess you know you're you're ranking you know B plus A minus somewhere in there. I mean, they're all just they're out they're all outstanding. If somebody was like, "Hey, you're going to be stuck on a desert island. And the only album you're going to be allowed to have is Actor by Saint Vincent," I'd be like, "All right, that's so yeah, bad. cool. You know, not not such a bad break. Yeah, could have been could have been a lot worse. Um, and this is why they don't let us come up with the pitchfork grades because I feel like the pitchfork review for Daddy's Home was like unnecessarily harsh. Like, ugh. Yeah, we don't need to get into it, but it's like, oh, I will <laughs> chill. I mean, they're they fault, and I only read it once, and I was like, all right, I don't, I don't necessarily know if I need this, but like, they fault her for having African American backup singers, and I, like, damned if you do, damned if you don't, kind of stuff. It's like, what do you want? Do you want her to have like the 70s soul sound? And then if she has uh white backup singers, and you're gonna ding her for that, uh, and like the idea of like her, you know being super into this 70s sonic palette like too much so it's like well i don't know well it's funny because it's like they got they got it wrong with this album i mean and, and because the other music critics that, that rated this album all had it like pretty pretty high up there uh, i think that they gave it gave it either a 6.3 or a 6.8 yeah, i think which, it was a 6.8 and they gave mass seduction like a 7.6 whereas like actor and the self-titled and uh marry me uh like those are all like well well up there in the eight and and nine and nines, yeah. point categories so it's yeah, not like sure. you know, they have anything against her as an artist i think sometimes people just like get bored and it's like all right well what are you going to do for me now and it's like no matter what moves they make it's not as good as maybe what the memories are of the past and it just didn't come across as like a super fair review of this album to me and it's an album where if you listen to it once or twice you're like okay yeah it is what it is but you've got to give yourself you know those repeated listenings if you're really gonna like accurately and fairly i think judge someone's material it's dismissive to hear it once and be like yeah this is a little 70s for my taste well yeah like no crap that's the yeah, whole idea. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I mean, you know, to me, it's like they, they got it wrong with their rating on this one. And then they have been systematically trying to backpedal that rating ever since because they post about this album constantly. Well, it's just headlining media. like the Pitchfork Festival. So, which, you know, they've <laughs> yeah. done before. They've like panned something and then that person headlines and it's all, it's all good, whatever. Yeah. Sure, she doesn't, sure, she doesn't care that much. I'll tell you what, though, uh, talking about 70s vibes. I would like to preview our next deeper listening episode because we are going to uh, 1973, but we are going to cover 
a lot of ground, the 70s, a little bit of the 80s, and even a touch of early and mid-90s via my favorite song of all time. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Eyes of the World, Grateful Dead. Everyone knows what we're talking about. I've always wanted to really dig in to eyes across the different eras of the Grateful Dead. I've also really wanted to just dig into eyes. I've always loved it, but I've almost not wanted to like spoil that love by <laughs> getting too deep into it. Well, it's been decades and I'm ready to like get deep into it. So that's what we're going to do in the next uh, deeper listening podcast. And I am uh, freaking excited about it yeah. for sure. I am too, man. And it was, and it was cool because we decided to do this uh, a couple of weeks ago and I've been thinking about it since then. And uh, I went and saw uh, the J-Ride show in Connecticut uh, on Sunday this past week. And, uh, and what did they open the show with? Eyes of the world. Um, So I was like, I was like, yeah, perfect. I'm really looking forward to digging into it too. I mean, to me, it kind of, it's, it's very similar to uh, other music projects that I, that I've done, you know, with taking fish songs through a particular era. Uh, I did a, a, I'm in the process of doing the Reba project. And then I did a deep dive into, into their song, David Bowie, where I listened to every single version from 93 through 95 and kind of looked at the arc of the way that it, that it, uh, that it develops. I really liked what we're going to be doing here because we're going to be taking kind of lauded versions from all different eras and then comparing those together. And one thing that I know about the Grateful Dead is that you're not going to get the same thing from era to era. And, uh, you know, so I'm sure that they're all, you know, magnificent versions, but they're going to be magnificent in all in all different ways. Very excited about this. So it'll be a cool, a cool way to do it. So as for this episode, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast and please feel free to leave us a review. We have read them all. You can also find us on Twitter at Listen Deeper or on Instagram at Deeper underscore listening underscore podcast. We'd love to know what you think, what you like, what you don't. And we will look forward to talking to you next time. Thanks as always to the incredible Thomas Wing for our theme music. Get into a better mood indeed. Check out his Bandcamp page at blackoutmakeout.bandcamp.com. There's a link in the show notes. And would also like to note that he is working on a cover of an Animal Collective song after having listened to our Animal Collective episode. So uh, very, very cool to be a very small influence on his musical genius. So please make sure to check that out. And as soon as it comes out, I feel like we're going to have to include that at the very end of our podcast, or at least a snippet of it, so people will go hear it. So look for that at the end of, who knows, maybe our Eyes of the World episode, if Thomas finishes it up. I can't wait. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Yeah.